0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. The scripture reading today is from Acts chapter 2, verses 1-13. through 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly, This is the word of the Lord. Praise, Praise be to, be to Christ. Christ.
1: Thank you, Hannah. Good morning. My name is Lee Eric Fesco, and I'm the Director of Discipleship here. If I have not had a chance to meet you, it's, uh, it's my pleasure to do so. I hope to, hope to meet you afterwards, and uh, especially want to thank Scott, our pastor, for giving me the, uh, the privilege of, of, of uh, entrusting me with this job today. Um, I'm so excited about this sermon series that we're in now. I, I love the book of Acts. What we have in this book is an historical account of the detailing of the formation of the Christian church. This is the early frontier of the Christian church as we know it. So when we look at the details on how the church was formed, not only is it fascinating to see these events unfold, but it also informs us about who we are as a church today. The instruction, the mindset, the rationale and and, and motivation all all remains the same as it did some 2000 years ago as a church. As a church, we are anchored into the book of Acts, and it, it's what keeps us steady, even in the midst of, you name the uncertainty. I want you to think about, in terms of, of where we are in the narrative, in the development of the, of the Christian church at this point, where we've been and, and where we are. The second chapter of Acts at this event, which is known by Christians everywhere, is Pentecost. At this point in the narrative, it was just several weeks prior before Jesus was crucified, where Jesus sat in the upper room with his disciples and he was preparing them. He was preparing them for for all that they were about to face. So just enough people to fit in a relatively small room. And he's preparing those people because they'll be the ones that in a manner of speaking are gonna be the founders of the Christian church. In this upper room, they, they have to be looking at Jesus, I would think. They have to be looking at Jesus thinking, you're the one, right? You're, you're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. You know, the, the one that's going to deliver us from, from the oppressive rule of Rome, right? You're the one, right? And what does Jesus tell them? Essentially, he tells his disciples So, I'm going to go away now. And I know that must be disappointing to you. Nevertheless, it's to your advantage that I go, he says. Because if I don't go, the Helper will not come to you." And I don't think I'm reading into the text here when I say that the disciples must have looked at Jesus at this point and thought, what? And what Helper? You know how I know that? You know how I know that's probably what they were thinking? You know how I know that they didn't get it? Because as we heard in in last week's sermon text, there's Jesus. This is now after his resurrection, right right before his ascension. He's standing in their midst. The disciples have now witnessed the power of Christ over death. And according to what we read in Acts chapter 1, the last question they have for Jesus, their very last opportunity to ask Jesus a question, they ask this, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, Lord, now? Now, I think I may be reading into the text a little bit when I imagine Jesus looking, looking at them and thinking, what? <laughs> you guys just don't get it, do you? Did, you? did you hear what I just said? And this is what he just said, Acts 1, to 4-5. He told them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now, remember? The helper. So now, Lord? Now are you going to be our military hero? No, they didn't get it. They didn't understand. Not yet. When when did they understand? Well, now we get to Acts chapter 2. And Acts chapter 2 opens, as you heard, when the day of Pentecost arrived. When when Christians think about that word Pentecost, those, those that are familiar with it generally have a specific association that goes along with it. If you were to ask any given Christian, what is Pentecost? I think most often you'd get an answer having to do with the Holy Spirit. Ah, Pentecost. That's the day the Holy Spirit showed up. Well, sort of. Okay. And this is what I love about the Bible. This is what I love about the Bible. This to me is, is, is nothing short of miraculous. When I read passages like, like Hannah just read for us a moment ago, I think, this has got to be true. This has got to be true. What mere mortal could have come up with with all of this and made it fit together like this? You see, when we read a sentence like this in our Bibles, that says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Great. What's the next verse? Hold on. Hold on. Not too fast. Not too fast. Don't, Don't miss the miracle that was just said in that one sentence. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. According to Matthew's gospel, among the last words that Jesus said to his disciples, you know, the 11 people in the upper, upper room who were no doubt confused by what Jesus was saying, he said this to them, Matthew 28, 18 and following, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And I'll stop right there. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations nations. You, you 11 confused people and some of your friends, go make disciples of, of Israel? No. Of the immediate surrounding area? No. Mm-mm. Go make disciples of all nations. For 11 fairly confused men, that seems like a, a giant, fairly impossible task. You know, I'm uh, I'm nearing the age of 50 and that means that I'm at a stage in life where there are certain things I can no longer do. You know, once you reach the age, this age, you're eliminated from doing those things and it's really just for your own good. When I was younger, say in my 20s and maybe even into my 30s, it seemed that I always had a friend who needed to relocate and when you're in your 20s and 30s, the the way you relocate is you you rent a U-Haul and you call your closest friends. At my age now, the thought of helping someone move terrifies me. (laughs) I've tried tried to retire from, from helping people move, but it seems as though I'm like the Michael Jordan of moving. As much as I try and retire from this activity, I keep finding myself coming out of retirement. Don't get me wrong, I exercise, and I believe I'm strong enough to, to push an appliance across the room, but, but the reality is I am now running a greater risk of breaking myself when I engage in such activity. It's, it's a fact of life. So I was helping my mom recently move a washer and dryer. Of course I'm going to help my mom with this activity. If I'm careful, I won't break. But you know this occasion when I, when I set out to move these large objects, I brought all kinds of implements to help me with a job. I, I, brought, I brought back straps, you know, I, uh, I brought a hand truck, like a dolly, a set of wheels, and I also brought two teenaged boys. <laughs> My back feels great. Having the right equipment makes all the difference, does it not? Having the right resources suddenly makes an impossible task much less impossible. Thanks to the miracle of physics, the invention of wheels, and the ability to make your two sons come with you, we've made great strides when it comes to moving large objects. Taking the gospel to the world is a giant, fairly impossible task for 11 confused men. How do you do that? How do you you even begin to do that? Right here in Acts chapter 2, it's like the Lord saying, I'm going to help you out. Let, let me lighten your load a little bit. Let, let me equip you. Let, let me help you with my command. So how do you do that? You see, Pentecost didn't begin in Acts chapter 2. Pentecost didn't begin in Acts chapter 2. Pentecost began some 1,400 to 1,500 years prior. This is why I say no no mere mortal could have put this together. No mere mortal could have dreamed this up and made this all work together like this. This has to be of divine origin. The Feast of Weeks is a festival that's prescribed in the book of Leviticus, and it's essentially an offering of thanksgiving that took place exactly 50 days to the day after the start of Pentecost. 50 days, which is why the Feast of Weeks is also called Pentecost. Pentecost means 50 or 50th. Now, what's special about this feast, similar to the other feast described in Leviticus, is that it prescribed that however far away you live from Jerusalem, you made your way to the city to take part in this offering of thanksgiving. This was prescribed some 1400 to 1500 years before the events of Acts chapter 2, that people from all over the known world would journey to Jerusalem to take part in this feast. You see what this means? It means there's a big crowd there, a big big crowd of people. God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven, the scripture tells us. And since people were coming from far and wide, it meant what? It meant there were different cultures and different language all assembled together in one enormous gathering. Now let's just stop right here for a minute and appreciate what's happening. Go tell the world about me. How are we going to do that, Lord? how about I bring the world to you? What what if I bring people from all over? What if I assemble them here, people from every nation under heaven? Would that help you think? I'm going to start working on that for you some 1,400 to 1,500 years ahead of time. Who but God, friends? Who but God? Do you see what the Lord does for his disciples? Do you see what the Lord does for us? I dare you, I dare you to look through the scriptures, look through the scriptures and try and find a command that God isn't accompanied, that God isn't accompanied with a reminder, that's not accompanied with a reminder, an indicative that tells you by whose power you're to execute his very commands, his imperatives. Try it. It was St. Augustine who said, O Lord, command what you will and give what you command. In other words, God expects us to do what he tells us to do. God expects obedience, but ultimately, it's God Himself that enables our obedience. He gives us the power to do what He asks us to do. Do you think, you think you're alone in this? You feel like you're on an island with your faith? Do you realize that even if you're the only one on that proverbial island, you are not alone? You have the empowering, abiding presence of the omnipotent that indwells you and enables you to, to do the very things he commands you to do. Go make disciples of all nations. How, Lord? How are we going to do that? I'm going to send a helper, but first, I'm going to bring all nations to you. Wow, that's great, Lord, but we got one problem. We've got a bit of a language barrier. It's great to have everyone here, but we can't speak their language. I guess we're gonna have to pantomime all of this, Lord. And what does the Lord say? The Lord says, what language barrier? And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Problem solved. The Spirit came upon them and divided tongues as fire rested upon them and they began to speak in other language divided tongues of fire might be something that you read in the text there and just blow right by but but don't don't miss it don't miss what's going on here because it's significant if you're if you're like me you grew up in the 1980s. My son and I were having a conversation on the way, way here today, and he, he, said, I think, he said, I think I like alternative music. I said, you mean like rock music? He said, no, 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 alternative music. Rock music is what I used to say when I was younger. I didn't know what I was talking about, so now he knows. But when I was in the 80s, it was rock and roll music, right? And fire, as a part of rock and roll music, was the sideshow. If you listened to rock and roll music in the 80s and attended any concert of the rock and roll variety, and I know it sounds very old when I say it that way, but I'm doing that on purpose, there was a good chance you'd see some fire on the stage. It wasn't, it wasn't the thing you paid your money to see, but it was nice. It was a nice sideshow. Electric guitars, long hair, and fire. Now you have a rock band. Fire, fire here in the second chapter of Acts, isn't the sideshow. It is the show. Fire, as we see here in the second chapter of Acts, and in other places in the Bible, is what we would call a theophany. Do you know what a theophany is? A theophany is the visible manifestation of an invisible God. Fire here represents not a side effect to impress people or to catch their attention. It represents the very presence of God. Can you think of other times in the Old Testament where fire was represented by the presence of God? In the Midianite wilderness, the burning bush. Remember that? The burning bush, it wasn't consumed. He spoke to Moses through the fire. What about the exodus itself? How are the people led out of Egypt? By a pillar of, of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. The prophet Elijah was lifted up to heaven by a chariot of, yes, you guessed it, fire. Fire. And the theme still continues on into the New Testament in the book of Hebrews twelve We're told that God is a consuming fire. But but you also have to notice the symbolism, too. What's going on here? Fire, especially during this time, was a source of light. It was a source of warmth and comfort. So you have to notice everything that's going on here. The The very presence of God, he announces his presence visibly, and then he fills the apostles. He indwells. He indwells them just as the Father promised, just as Jesus detailed for them in that upper room. The helper has arrived, and immediately he starts helping. They begin doing things that they previously weren't able to do. They were were starting to speak another language so that the spreading of the gospel to the world, it can begin now. I don't know how far any of you are removed from having to study anything. If you're still in school, you're you're still having to study and having to study all the time. I already told you I'm almost 50, and uh, I'm still studying things. I still find myself being told, this is required of you. If if you want to be called, for instance, if you want to be called pastor, you have to know this subject really well, so so get to studying. And I know some of you know this feeling. When you're studying something, you're reading. You'll you'll read a whole page of something, and you reach the end, and you think to yourself, what what did I just read? I, I I, I know I read all the words, but I have no idea what I just read. And if we're being honest, there are accounts all through the Bible that make us feel that way. You'll, you'll make your way through, especially if you're doing something like trying to read your way through the whole, the whole Bible, you'll read something and think, well, I don't know what that was, but I got to keep going. There's an account very early in the Bible. It's, it's in the 11th chapter of Genesis, and it's the account that's known as appropriately the Tower of Babel. At this point in Genesis, Noah and the flood have already occurred, so this is after that. The world is now repopulating through Noah's line, and what happens? We're told at this point, the whole earth had one language. The whole earth had one language, and people assembled from far and wide and purposed, it says, to, to build a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. They said, let's make a name for ourselves and let's build a tower that reaches as far as heaven. Well, that seems like a bad idea in general. It honestly sounds like something a bunch of kids would do on the beach. Let's see how high of a pile of sand we can build up, right? But again, let's build a tower to God. Let's make a name for ourselves and build a tower that reaches God. Now, as absurd as that sounds, God's response seems, well, not, not what I would have guessed. How did he respond? He basically says, let's go down there and let's put a stop to this. Let's confuse their language so they they can't understand each other. And that's what the triune God did. The Lord suddenly gave them all kinds of different language to the point that they became confused and abandoned their giant sandcastle project. And again, if you're just reading your way through the Bible and you come across this passage and read it, you may may walk away and think, well, there's another passage I'm not sure I get. Why would the Lord do something like that? And once again, a passage like this only proves the miraculous nature of the Bible. This is incredible. If if you read this passage and only read this passage, if I can be so bold, it really doesn't make sense. But you see, it's a passage like this that only makes sense in the light of the New Testament. Like so many other passages in the Old Testament, they might make you scratch your head if you only read those passages. For example, the story of Jonah prophet of God, swallowed by a great fish, spent three nights in its belly, then spit up on the shore of Nineveh to then take the the message of God to the lost. That story doesn't make sense until its final cadence comes about in the New Testament. The story of Jonah only makes sense when we discover it's really the Lord telling the story of Jesus hundreds of years before Jesus. Jonah three days inside the great fish prefigures the resurrection of Jesus who spent three days inside the belly of the earth. Or what about the story of Job? If you read the account of Job and only read the account of Job, you'd walk away thinking, that story doesn't make a lot of sense. The Lord and Satan are having a conversation and the Lord is telling Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan basically replies with, of course he's faithful to you. Look look at all you've done for him. Stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord accommodates the the request of Satan and stretches out his hand against Job. What in the world is the point of that? When the Lord encountered Satan, why did he say any words to him at all other than, what are you doing here? Leave. I don't want to ever see you again. Be gone. And then the book of Job would be over after about seven verses. But instead, the book goes on for 42 chapters, and we read about the, the, the testing and the suffering of Job. How does that story make any sense? Because it's really the Lord telling us the story of Jesus hundreds of years before Jesus. Job, a righteous man, suffering and betrayed by his family and friends prefigures the suffering and betrayal of Jesus' family and friends. The story of Job is really the story of Jesus hundreds of years before Jesus. The story of Job only makes sense in the light of the New Testament. So what about this story of Babel? The story of Babel in the Old Testament, the story of people coming from near and far of one language suddenly impeded by language. Does this story make any sense on its own? Again, it only makes sense in the light of the New Testament. You see some similarities here between this account and Acts chapter 2? Here are these people trying to make a name for themselves, and God says no, and he scatters them. And then language becomes a barrier. Suddenly, they're not united, they're divided. And from this point forward, For the rest of the Old Testament, the worship and praise of God is basically limited to one group of people right up until Acts chapter 2. Pentecost is a reversal of the curse at Babel. God gives everyone understanding, so now instead of his praise and worship being contained to effectively one language, it's proclaimed in every language. People are now united where they were previously divided. They're united, not for their own sake or their own name, but united in his name. In the account of Babel, notice what happens. The people were building a tower so so they could reach up to God. Now we, in a united voice, not language, but voice, can testify that he came down to us. This is what's declared on every page of scripture. Not that we reach up to God, but that he comes down to us. It's the exact opposite of what happened at Babel. In the account of Babel, the people gathered in one location in an attempt to make their own name great. In Acts chapter 2, he scatters us all over the earth to make his name great. In the account of Babel, language becomes a barrier to man's glorification. In Acts chapter 2, languages are redeemed so that the gospel can go forth and glorify God all over the world. God came down reversed a curse that was pronounced at Babel, tongues that were previously confused became united so that the gospel, just as the apostles told, were told, they could go out and start the church all over the world, unimpeded by language, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Do you see what this means for people like you and me? I, I want to talk a little shop right now. I, and I primarily intend this to be for those who call ourselves Christians, and if that doesn't describe you, that's okay. I'd love for you to hear this too. Because as I said before, the book of Acts describes the formation of the early church, but it also prescribes many things for us for the church today. It gives us a manual of sorts that time cannot and will not tarnish. It's interesting, isn't it? These are are God-fearing people who have descended upon Jerusalem to take part in this festival, yet there are some fully invested in the moment, and there are those who aren't. And I'm not sure sure why exactly. But notice that there are those in the midst that when they see something that doesn't quite align with what they're used to, they mock it and they say, well, they must be drunk. I can't explain it, so I'm going to dismiss it. It doesn't align with my practice, so it must be wrong. Can we imagine what the church would look like If we were more like the ones who are amazed by the Holy Spirit, amazed at what we see in one another instead of the ones who are dismissive. I think if there's a central theme to what we read here in Acts chapter 2, it's one of expansion and unity. Previously the church was was here, was right here, and now the church is, is here. And please don't think this is a new idea for the first time in Acts chapter 2. This is what the Lord had in mind all along. Also way back in Genesis, it was the Lord himself who promised Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky, that he would be a father to not a nation, but a multitude of nations. And here in Acts chapter 2, we're finally seeing its fulfillment. This is God's eternal plan. Not Not that we would be a people who all basically looked the same and acted the same and practiced all the same things all the time. We are, by God's design, a diverse group of people with with diversity in practice, culture, and giftedness. So this means we, as a church family, we will be different in a lot of ways, but we'll be exactly the same in one very specific and supremely important way. The same Holy Spirit that ushered in the new era of the church in Acts The same Holy Spirit that gave the apostles power to start the Christian church, the same Holy Spirit that that miraculously allowed people to speak in language they couldn't before so that the gospel could go to the world, that same Holy Spirit is the same Holy Spirit that has taken up residency in your heart and mine, and everyone who believes in the saving work of Jesus Christ from every corner of the world. We have the Holy Spirit in common. If the Holy Spirit occupies your heart and mind, what are we capable of when it comes to unity? Remember, God equips us with everything we could possibly need to carry out his commands. We have what we need to be of one mind and heart. So what stops us? What stops us? Well, we still have a little bit of babble remaining in us. We we still have a need to make a name for ourselves instead of making the name of the Lord known. What if when we looked at one another, we recognized each other through the eyes of the Holy Spirit that occupies our hearts? What would that look like? God unlocked the power of the Holy Spirit and gave it to his church. Not not just for those who are gathered in the moment at Pentecost, but to the church for every age and to every Christian throughout time. That wind, that fire is as much for us today as it was for those gathered in the upper room. So this event, as much as it was for the apostles, is also for you and me too. And and I don't just say this so we can really just psych ourselves up and try harder to be nice and, and think of the best each other. I say this because we really need this. We really need this, and we don't often realize how much we need it. The Holy Spirit that occupies our hearts is the Holy Spirit that empowers us to carry out His work. When Jesus told the disciples that it was for their own good that he'd go away so that the helper, the Holy Spirit, would come, here's what that means. If Jesus stays, if the resurrected Jesus remains behind with the apostles and remains here physically for the church for generations to come, guess where the focus remains? The focus remains on the one single person of Jesus. Maybe that's not a bad thing, but the Lord had other plans. Through the gift of the Holy Spirit, the church itself becomes the body of Christ. Not a body that remains in one place at a time, but one that lives, breathes, communicates, embraces a word of encouragement, uplifts, and gives his abiding presence in every corner of the world. In Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul goes into great detail on how you and I, those who are marked by the Holy Spirit, are the body of Christ. And it's the presence of the Holy Spirit that makes this a reality. He gives what he commands. Again, we need this. We need it. I know many of you are aware that uh, I lost my dad this past summer. And as is the case when you lose someone you love, it's, it's difficult in ways that words do not capture. He was, he was diagnosed And six six weeks later, he was gone. How do you deal with something like that? I'll tell you what my inclination is. My inclination is I got to a point where it became so emotionally draining. All I wanted to do was be at home, not to talk to anyone, not to receive any emails, text messages, or phone calls. I just wanted to be left alone by myself. That's what my inclination is. And the Lord said, no. You see, I think I know what I need. I think I know what's best for me. I think I know how to make a name for myself. And the Lord says, no, I know what you need. And what you need is the body of Christ. And the emails and the text messages and the phone calls, the meals, the hugs, the uplifting words, they kept coming and they didn't stop. I still have people checking on me asking me how I'm doing. How is that? By the Spirit of God that gives testimony to the fact that you and I are sustained in life by Him through each other. Listen to this quote from John Stott, and and with this I'll close. Without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. There can be no life without the life giver, no understanding without the Spirit of truth, no fellowship without the unity of the Spirit, no Christ-likeness of character apart from his fruit, and no effective witness without his power. As a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the Spirit is dead. The The power of the Holy Spirit, friends, may we be the body of Christ to one another. May we recognize the Lord's presence in each other and believe the best And may we be the hands and feet of Christ to the world. Join me in a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit. Thank you that he gives us the power to love each other to life. Thank you that he enables us to take your gospel to every corner of the earth and that he eliminates every obstacle imaginable so that your word may go forth. And, Father, most of all, we thank you for the Holy Spirit who, who raised Jesus from the grave after giving his body and blood for sinners like us. So by that same power of the Holy Spirit, we would, we would be raised to, to newness of life and forever accepted into the beloved body of Christ. And it's in his holy name that we pray. Amen.